Open your Bibles, if you would, if you have a copy with you, to Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10. In my Bible, that's page 791. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. This is the word of God through the mouth of Haggai. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So, it is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands... And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, but there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew, and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we have gathered here this morning to worship you, to know more, to see more, and to taste more of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for the time that we've had already of lifting our voices and singing praises to you and about you. We ask now, Lord, that you would bless your word upon the hearers. May we be changed by your word and the power of the Holy Spirit using your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to recognize sin in our life and for the recognition of that sin to cause confession and repentance to you and a refreshing and joy that is a new in the gospel of Jesus Christ that keeps us. Lord, we thank you for all that we have, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, where we are now, just as a, a quick recap, in chapter 1, God has confronted the people uh, for their indifference to worshiping God. They're just going on about life. They're not 
worried or regarding that the temple is laid desolate and he's confronted them regarding their indifference to that because that is symbolic of God's presence and so he's confronted them with their indifference to God's presence in their midst and this was being expressed in their disregard as I said to rebuild the temple and more recently in chapter 2 God confronts them with their discouragement they were discouraged about the rebuilt temple being much more utilitarian plain basic than it was when it was built under Solomon they were discouraged also that they were still under the hand of another nation although they had been released to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple they were still under the hand of another nation and so God encourages them that he is still on his throne and that he will keep all of his promises the people just like us and you'll remember this from a couple of weeks ago the people just like us want the promises of God in two ways they want we want the promises of God to happen the way we want them fulfilled and we want the promises of God in the timing that we want them to be fulfilled and so God reminds them here in the beginning of chapter 2 that God will keep his promises but his promises always come in his own timing because his own timing is always perfect perfect in timing and he also reminds us that his promises are always greater than we could ever ask or think and so we we ask for mud puddles when God has a spring of living water to give us and so he reminds the people of that in the beginning of chapter 2 so now we come to Haggai verse 10 of chapter 2 and you notice from the dates of the end of chapter 1 to now that they've been working on the temple for about three months and and we have something different going on now something different is being confronted and a different strategy of confronting the situation so I want to I want us to look at first what what is going on with the people here what's going on with the people why is God saying what what he just said what we just read and I want to read verses 11 uh, through 14 again thus says the Lord of hosts now remember God is God is bringing this up for a specific purpose for what's going on with the people and he says thus says the Lord of hosts verse 11 ask the priests about the law if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food does it become holy and the priest answered and said no then Haggai said if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these does it become unclean and the priest answered and said it does become unclean then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So God is bringing this up for a specific reason to address a specific problem that's going on with the people. The conclusion that Haggai states is that what the people are doing is unclean. 
what the people are doing is unclean. Now, what does that mean? Why is God saying this? What's, what is going on here that is causing God to say such a thing about the people? And I think to figure this out, we need to see the method by which God confronts the people. We notice that Haggai asked the priests about the law. The priests were uh, leaders of the people. It was the priest's responsibility to not only offer the sacrifices, but it was also the priest's responsibility to interpret the law of God um, rightly um, for the people. So Haggai is told by God to ask the priests a question, actually two questions regarding the law. Two questions that have to do with the same thing. And here's what we have to remember um, that the Bible teaches us in Psalm 19:7 and elsewhere, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So what God is doing here is he's using the law to confront the people's sin. God is using the law here to confront the people's sin. And again, he says, he, he asks the priest the question about the, 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 the food. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, holy meat would be one that was given for a sacrifice. If someone is carrying that in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priests say, no, no. A, a, a piece of meat that's set apart for sacrifice touching something else does not make the something else holy. Well, what about something unclean? If something unclean touches some, something, does that make them unclean or that unclean? And the priest said, yes, it does become unclean. So what is being addressed here is a misunderstanding of the, of the purpose of the law. And whenever there is a misunderstanding, which is why God has Haggai ask the priests, Right? Rather than the people. God's not interested in opinions about these things. He wants to know what God's law says. And so he uses those who are responsible for the law and the interpretation of the law to give the answers before the people of the law. And so there's a misunderstanding of the law here. And, and, and I hope that you see it here in a minute. And, and whenever there is a misunderstanding of the law, there is a misunderstanding of the purpose of works. Okay, they're always tied together. Whenever there is a misunderstanding of the law, there is a misunderstanding of the keeping of the law or the works of the law or good works. And God is calling them on two crucial truths. Two crucial truths. The first I want us to look at is this. Number one, appeasement is not worship. I, I think my slide, the slide came up and it said that the title of the sermon was Stop Going Through the Motions. Stop Going Through the Motions. The first thing God is addressing here is appeasement is not worship. The people here they're going through the motions. That's what they're doing. 
They're going through the motions. They're thinking that going through the motions is what pleases God. And therefore, God is pleased by the motion of works. Right? Uh, maybe we're not building a temple. Maybe we're reading our Bible daily. We have a baby, uh, uh, not a baby, a Bible daily reading plan, right? We have a, a, a daily reading plan. We have ministry that we're involved in. We have church attendance on Sunday morning. We have, you name it, Sunday school that we go to. We have giving to missions, giving to, 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 to the church, whatever, whatever it may be in our times. Sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we are like the people of Haggai and we catch ourselves merely going through the motions of worship. Just the outward expressions of worship. And when we do that, we're misunderstanding the law and we're misunderstanding works. It always goes hand in hand. Whenever they're going through the motions, and remember the religions around Israel, the, the religion of the Canaanites, the religion of the Egyptians, it was all about appeasement. It was all about appeasement. And, and, and the world rubs off on us, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that we get away from the world. It means we refresh ourselves with, with God and with the word of God and the worship of God. But the world rubs off on us. And the thought is, is that if we go through the motions and God is pleased by the external expressions in our motions, well then God will give us what we desire. And, and your desire list may be much different than my desire list. What is it that they desire here? What is it that the people seem to desire here? I think that chapter 1 and chapter 2 and, and what we cover next week and what I read already this morning through verse 19 tells us what is the maybe hidden desire of the heart. It wasn't hidden in chapter 1. But maybe it's becoming hidden now in chapter 2. Because what they're doing is going through the motions what seems to be their desire is the fat life. You know what? If God says we need to rebuild the temple in order for the harvest to be in abundance, then let's go through it. If, if God says we need to rebuild the temple and he's disappointed that we're not rebuilding the temple, then let's do it, man, because we need the olives and the grapes and the wheat. We need all that stuff, and we need, we need our, our, our cupboards overflowing, right, so we can live in comfort, so that we can abound in temporal things. Let's just go through the motions. And God's calling them on it. God's calling them on it as God calls us on it often when we find ourselves just going through the motions, the external expressions of worship. 
And here's the thing. When we are going through the motions, what is really at the heart of our behavior is this. When we're going through the motions, what's really at the heart of our behavior is this. We want the gift rather than the giver. We want the gifts more than we want the giver. When's the last, and I include myself in this question, when's the last time that you woke up on Sunday morning and on the way here you were like, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. When we go through the motions what our heart is really saying to us is we prize the gifts over the giver. And God's calling them on this very thing. And he's using the law to confront sin, which is wise. And going through the motions is not only an expression of us wanting the gift over the giver, but it's also a, a default of hoping that works gain you a standing with God. If if I if I just if I just keep going to church on Sunday, and if I just keep checking that box off every day of my Bible reading plan, and and if I go to Sunday school, I mean, surely God looks down and He sees my perfect attendance at church on Sunday, and He's pleased, and He says, "Man, this person really deserves a life of comfort." I mean, I know that none of us would say this out loud. But I'm telling you, it's at the heart of our, it's, it's, it's at our heart, it's in the heart of our behavior when we're just going through the motions. We're hoping and we're believing in that moment that somehow we can gain God to be obligated to us for what we've done. That's, that's, that was the religion of all the surrounding uh, nations was appeasement in order for God to bless. So you are doing things that please God in order for God to be obligated to give you things that you would be pleased in. To give you what you want when you want it, right? This is the this is the default hope of works gaining you a standing with God, so that He will be obligated to you to give you what you want when you want. It is a works salvation mindset. Is what it is. And listen to me. I know that if you're a Christian, you believe in justification by faith alone. Amen? But our flesh that we battle every day believes in a works-based salvation. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And so when we're thinking naturally and we're not thinking spiritually, our, our mindset can fall into this kind of thinking, appeasement. 
And this is why God confronts the people with the law. He wants them to understand that good works cannot purify you nor save you. You putting your hand to a good work does not purify you. It defiles the work that you touch is what God's saying here. And he's using his law and the priests to point that out to the people because it's not an easy thing to hear, is it? It's the very offense of the gospel is that you can't work your way to God because until you're purified by God, everything you touch is defiled before God. So God's saying, I want you to understand that going through the motions of doing what I've commanded to do is not somehow going to obligate me to you. It's not going to purify you. You're just defiling the work that you put your hands to. And that th this is a basic and foundational problem for mankind because our belief naturally is that somehow, somehow we can do enough to earn a good standing with God. Somehow we can tip the scales in our favor and surely if God looks, if God just watches the news every night, I I'll win. And I'm not a serial killer. It's, it's the basic and foundational problem for mankind is the belief that somehow we can earn a good standing with God. Somehow we can do enough to cover our sin, our own sin, right? That's what it is. Tip the scales in order to cover enough of our sin so that God accepts us. And it's, it's blasphemy because it, it, it actually does away and negates the atoning work of the Son of God. Somehow, though, we can, we ha there has to be a way to do enough to appease God, to just please him enough so that he'll just... He'll let me live my life comfortably. So God addressing here the people of Israel, it's not a problem specific to Israel. It's a problem specific to mankind since the fall. We know this is a specific problem of Israel as, long as, as, as well as mankind because over and over in the Old Testament, God confronts the nation of Israel with this uh, false understanding of the law. And the Apostle Paul even tells us in Romans 10, 1 through 4, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for them, being his ethnic people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they who, ethnic Israel, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You hear that? There is a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. And what is God confronting here in Haggai? A misunderstanding of knowledge. And, and then he goes on, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You hear that? And, and again, this isn't a specific problem for Israel. This is a specific problem for humanity. But they misunderstand the righteousness of God and they seek to use the law to create a righteousness of their own. And God's confronting them with this very thing here in Haggai chapter 2. He's confronting Israel 
to correct their understanding of the law, the purpose of the law, and the purpose of works. And why is it so important to understand these doctrines correctly? Because a misunderstanding of the law and a misunderstanding of works and the purpose of works goes in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the very thing that will harden your heart to the gospel is by somehow thinking that you can do enough to appease God. So again, verse 12 and 13 of Haggai 2, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? No. If something unclean touches something, does it make them become unclean? Yes. And the thought is that since I'm doing the Lord's work, Right? I mean, God just confronted us just a few months ago to start getting busy with the temple. And that the reason he's been withholding grain and olives and, and grapes and all the harvest, the reason... So let's, let's start doing the Lord's work. And then... If we do the Lord's work, then that'll make us holy in his presence. This is a thought they're going through here. If we just get busy doing the Lord's work, then, then God will see us as holy. And it'll please God so that God is now obligated to do for us. So God uses Haggai to confront the people with the law that they, they so esteem but they use it with zeal, as Paul says, but with a lack of knowledge. This is, this is what God is pointing out and that the law of God clearly teaches. Your participation in holy work doesn't make you holy. Your participation in holy work does not make you holy. As a matter of fact, it makes your work defiled. It actually defiles the work that you do. So if we are impure, then all that we do is impure by our defiling it by putting our hands to the task. Now, what does the Bible teach us of our impurity? Let's make sure that we understand the depths of our impurity. Romans 3, 9 through 18, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a universal judgment on all of humanity by God through the Apostle Paul. So God is teaching and reminding the people of this crucial truth. Since you are not pure, what you offer is impure as well. And keeping the commands of God externally, going through the motions, keeping up appearances, do not somehow make you clean or righteous. Isn't this what Jesus did on the Sermon of the Mount, right? It's not just the physical act of adultery that's sin. It's lusting after someone in your heart that defiles you as well. It's not what you touch. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Going through the motions and keeping up appearances do not somehow make you clean or righteous. Perfect attendance at church does not make you holy. Listen, no matter how splendid a work is, and listen, there's, there's things that people can do that will cause all of us to be in awe. But it doesn't matter how splendid the work is. It doesn't matter how magnificent it may look in the eyes of men. A work of great magnitude and splendor is still unclean. Unless the person offering the work is purified himself. The New Testament even tells us a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. You cannot offer a work to God that will be accepted unless you are wholly purified before the Lord. So this, this begs the question, does it not? How can our works ever be acceptable before God, right? That's the, I think that's the elephant in the room. At least it was when I was studying How, how can our works ever be acceptable before God? And here's where the gospel comes in. Here's where the gospel comes in. And this is why the promise of Haggai 2, 6 through 9 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Because here's the thing. We need a temple that we cannot defile. You can defile a physical temple, right? They did, and Jesus cleared it out. We need a temple that we cannot defile. We need a temple that can truly cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. We need a temple that has the power to forgive. We need a temple that is filled with the glory of righteousness. We need a temple that can impute that righteousness to our account. That temple came 
and his name is Jesus. Paul says in Romans 14, 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So whatever proceeds from faith is what? Not sin. Not in God's eyes. No, I'll, I'm going to show you. But whatever whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, so whatever proceeds from faith is not sin. It's the implication here. Listen to this Old Testament passage. At the very, this is the very beginning of mankind's history. In Genesis 4, 3 through 5, says this, in the course of time, you'll remember this passage, in the course of time, Genesis 4, 3 through 5, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Remember this passage? And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, th th these, are the, these are the very beginning of, of history of mankind here. And here's the question, and it's a gospel question. Why was Cain's offering not acceptable or accepted, but Abel's was accepted by God? And it's not because of what they offered. I've heard that before. It's not. It's not. There were plenty of... of um, exceptions to the rules of sacrifices for those who were impoverished. It's, it's not what they brought. Why was Cain's offering not accepted, but Abel's was accepted by God? Listen, and the Lord had regard for Abel. You see that? It's important. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. It doesn't say the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. It said Abel ha God had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. But this, is, this is important. Notice it, it's not just the offering, nor is the offering primary. What's primary is the person. It's important. What's primary here is not the offering. What's primary is the person. The offering's secondary. Now, why was Abel and his offering accepted by God? Well, Hebrews 11.4 tells us, by faith, Abel offered. <laughs> you hear that? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is important. How did Abel offer an acceptable gift or sacrifice to God? By faith, it says. 
That's how he did it. He, he offered the sacrifice by faith through which he was commended as righteous. Through what was Abel commended as righteous? Not through the gift. This is, this is gospel. This is so gospel. It, it's, it's not the gift. That's not how Abel was commended as righteous. It was through faith that Abel was commended as righteous. And therefore, his work, his sacrifice, was accepted by God. Not because it was something other than Cain. It was that he was something other than Cain. He had faith in God. And his faith made him acceptable to God as someone who is righteous and therefore his sacrifice or his work was accepted by God because of his faith. Now, remember what Paul said? Anything that does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. Anything that does proceed from faith is not sin. That's the implication. The acceptance of the gift by God was what proved Abel was righteous in God's eyes. It wasn't the gift that made Abel righteous. It was the acceptance of the gift that proved God saw Abel as righteous and he saw Abel as righteous because of Abel's faith. And this is a very important truth for us to know and to believe and to stand on and to rejoice in because by faith, all the children of God, after having been renewed by the Holy Spirit, come pure to God and offer God pure sacrifices. We come pure because it is our goal. We fail, amen? We fail, but it is our goal as Christians with renewed hearts and being born again and taking that heart of stone out and giving us a heart of flesh. We come to God and our desire our, our ultimate desire is that we can, we can present ourselves as a living sacrifice for the Lord. Amen? And so we long, like Paul does in Romans 7, that we would be delivered from this body of death and sin so that there, there's no longer sin remaining in us and our obedience can become perfect. But we, all, we know now in this life, even our devotion is not perfect. Amen? But here's the beauty of the gospel. I've said this before. It's not a, hey, Christ, just clean your plate. Do it yourself now. No. Hey, uh, I, I paid for your sins. Now it's up to you to once again try to keep the covenant between God and man. No. It is finished, Christ said on the cross. Everything that is ever needed for you to be kept in covenant with God, reconciled, and as his child has been done for you in Jesus and by Jesus Christ when you put your faith in him. But here, here's, here's it, God is so abounding in grace that when we offer our devotion and when we offer our sacrifices or works to God, he fills in the defects by grace. He fills in the defects by gracious imputation. 
because he embraces us, and this is important for us to understand too, he embraces us as his servants in the same manner as though we were entirely righteous. That's what it means to be justified. And justified is past tense for you if you are justified. It's past tense. It means that you have, in the courtroom of God, been declared not guilty. Not guilty forevermore. But we also know that we still experience sin. So there's, there's, this is the already but not yet that I've talked about. We are already righteous in God's eyes. But we do not experience that perfect and holy righteous standing in this life because we still have this body that's tainted with sin. But there is a day coming in which we will be delivered from this body of death and we will no longer experience the not yet. We will only experience the fullness of Christ's imputed righteousness to our account. And so, in the same way that God looks at us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our sins have been paid for by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, God also looks at our works in this manner. He approves of our works because of who we are in Jesus. All the blemishes of our works, and man, there are blemishes, amen? are wiped away by the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The very spots which might justly prevent all favor, all the blemishes that might justly prevent all favor have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of Christ, our works are made acceptable to God. And all of that is through faith. So let me close by saying this. Don't miss the promise. They missed it. So far they missed it. They missed the promise of verses 6 through 9, which says, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. There is peace in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Don't miss the promise. Luke 19, 41 and 42, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Don't miss the promise. Acts 2, 39 and 41, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, verse 41, so those who received his word. Listen, receive the promise of the Lord and understand the gospel that says there is no work that you can do to make yourself right before God. Outside of Christ, all that you do and all that you touch becomes defiled. 
But in Christ, we are made righteous. And all of our sins and defilement are washed away by the blood of Jesus. Don't mistake the purpose of the law. Don't mistake the purpose of works. And don't miss the promise. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be ye saved, says the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we